This episode is sponsored by yet another great company that I use and endorse, and that is Bubs Naturals. Now, they are offering you guys a discount on your first purchase with them, and I will get to that in a moment, but I really want to tell you the history of Bubs. Bubs was a call sign of Glenn Doherty, one of the courageous Navy SEALs that died in Benghazi, and his best friend, Sean Lake, co-founded Bubs Naturals not only to bring wellness solutions to the community, but to take 10% of the profits and donate to charities in Glenn's name. So I first came across their collagen through Jeff Nichols and had no preconceived notions or biases, but I started to witness in myself, my nails grow faster, my hair get thicker and longer, my skin, I've got very dry skin and it usually cracks in the winter, that has not happened this year. My joints, the aching, the kind of inflammation has definitely subsided. And then what really blew me away was actually my gut health. I saw that improve. And when you think about the gut is 80% of your immune system, that is incredibly pertinent. They have the apple cider vinegar gummies. I also take those. And then the MCT oil in a powder form has allowed me to put creamer back in my coffee after swearing off dairy for years. But when I have this creamer, it's adding energy, it's adding mental focus, so yet it's another supplement. Now, as far as efficacy, they're the only collagen that is 100% NSF for sports certified and Whole30 approved. So as I mentioned, the discount code. They are offering you 20% off a one-time purchase by using the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear the full story behind Bubs Naturals, and the courage of Glenn Doherty. Listen to my interview with Glenn's best friend and Bub's co-founder, Sean Lake, on episode 558 of the Behind the Shield podcast. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, You'll get 15% off, not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. 
And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, Behind the Shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Marjorie Lloyd. Now, Marjorie is a doctor of physical therapy who has worked with collegiate athletes, pediatrics, and even the tactical athletes of Tier 1 Special Operations. So we discuss a host of topics, from hydration to footwear, the aging athlete, the power of sleep, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 600 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Marjorie Lloyd. Enjoy. Well, MJ, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this fine morning? So I am currently residing in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Brilliant. All right. Well, obviously, that is known for uh, special operations personnel. Um, and I know you've worked with them closely for quite a while. I would love to start at the very beginning, though. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure. 
Uh, so I was born in San Diego, raised in Virginia, in Northern Virginia. We moved there when I was about two. So military family. Um, so unfortunately, I had to leave beautiful San Diego. Um, but uh, I am one of five kids. I'm the middle of five. And so definitely never a dull moment growing up. Lots of fun. And uh, my mom went reserves when I was entering seventh grade and because she decided to homeschool us. So she's super smart, Mensa. We had a library of over 3,000 books growing up. So um, I was raised in a household where if you ask a question, they don't tell you the answer, they tell you to go look it up. And so our friends didn't even go to the library. They would just go to our house when they had a research project, things like that, because this is obviously before the internet. (laughs) Um, So she started homeschooling us. Not only did she homeschool us kids, but she also homeschooled a group of other kids in the neighborhood as well. And um, it's funny, that's really where my passion for health and fitness kind of started coming to fruition. I didn't even realize it because as she started homeschooling these kids, I said, well, how are they going to get PE? They have to have PE. They have to have physical education. So I ordered the presidential physical fitness test and had it sent to the house And I ran the kids through the presidential physical fitness testing and then would order the little patches, things like that for them, you know, uh, depending on how well they did. So I didn't realize that that was going to kind of taper into what my passion was that I would follow into for a career choice later on. So kind of neat how that all that all started. And then I I went to Florida State uh, for my undergrad and my major was physical education. And so I taught, I moved back to Stafford after Florida State, Stafford, Virginia, where I grew up and taught for three years. Um, And then I was also a personal trainer in the evenings because teachers don't get paid well enough. Um, But after teaching for three, uh, for a few years, it was, it was eye-opening and exhausting. Unfortunately, I loved working with children. I love being a motivation and an educator for them and, showing them my passion about health and fitness and helping them grow that passion with health and fitness. But unfortunately in the school system, you're just, um, the, the PE teachers are kind of looked down as like, Oh, the bottom of the barrel. And, uh, you're not as respected as much. Your program's not as respected as much. So principal would come in and say, Oh, Hey, we have an assembly in the gym. Uh, is that okay? If you guys just, you guys can just go outside. Right. And it's like, well, hey, you know, I actually had a program. We don't just roll the ball out and play kickball all the time. I actually have a program and care about what I'm teaching. And now you're completely disrupting my plan um, because of your failed communication, things like that. So, um, but, you know, I would even hang out in the, in the cafeteria when the kids were going there for lunch because I knew that, you know, kids love to impress teachers and impress adults. And so they'd say, oh, look at the good food, healthy food choices I'm making. And so I'd hang out in there just when they were there for that exact reason. Um, But after that, you know, I decided it was exhausting also because schools are so overcrowded. And so um, with the lack of parental involvement in many kids' lives, you have a lot of kids and it's more like disciplining and you know, you're, you're too busy disciplining the bad kids and not able to truly have fun um, and enjoy it and teach as much. So I decided I, I had to get out um, or I would never want to have kids myself. <laughs> so um, that's when I kind of did some soul searching and, and did a career choice or career change. 
Well, there's so much to unpack there. Before we even go into physical education, because I'd love to stop and kind of explore that for a bit with you. But going a generation further back, right before we hit record, you mentioned that your grandmother was in World War II in the military. So let's talk about that first. What role did she serve and where was she? So she joined uh, what's called the WAVES program. So Teddy Roosevelt signed an act um, to help alleviate some of the male personnel for sea duty. And so the WAVES program, it stood for Women Accepted for Voluntary Service. And what she did was she ran the flight simulators. And this was out in, I believe she was out in Torrance, California. Um, So somewhere out there. And she ran the flight simulators Um, training the pilots and things like that. Um, So kind of cool that that act really helped to open up women coming into the military in general. I mean, you you had, you had the nurses, but that's really the only thing, maybe some yeomen um, that females did in the military. And then it kind of, that really just opened up that window for more women to serve. So what did she do after she transitioned out? Because one thing that baffles me is we had this, you know, heartbreaking world war. The entire, you know, most of the world was at war in one, you know, sense or another. Um, We called up, you know, people of all different ethnicities to come fight alongside each other to to fight for complete strangers. Women stepped into traditionally male roles, but then. And this is, I I don't know, I wasn't alive at the time, but I'm baffled to look at the 1950s where people were stringing up black people from trees again and women were back in the kitchen and it was very, very kind of, um, you know, misogynistic. Um, Did she ever give, you know, did she transition and maintain that or did she find herself sliding back into the quote unquote female role again? You're absolutely right. That's exactly what she did. She slid right back into that housewife role, you know, and she... I think that was just so, so much of the norm back then that she certainly never talked badly about it. Um, She did talk badly about female officers. And it's funny that my mom ended up becoming a female officer in the military. And, but the only reason she talked badly, it wasn't necessarily about the female officers themselves. It was that they weren't as respected. They didn't fit in because you weren't allowed to really, fraternize with the enlisted. And so, you know, she's just like, yeah, you don't want to even go that route because they don't really know what to do with female officers in the military and stuff. So, but yeah, she had just transitioned right back into that, that um, housewife role. And, uh, but it's funny that, you know, then my mom ended up going in and she was an unrestricted line officer. Essentially, it was kind of like, again, they didn't really know what to do with female officers in the military. I mean, you had some female pilots and stuff. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting to see how that growth through the years and the changes that the military has gone through with all that. So. Yeah, I mean, military and just society in general, like I said, you, you go from what we call the greatest generation in the world. When you look at the 1950s, it was kind of fucked up in a lot of ways. And it's like, how do we go from this incredible selfless altruism to the, you know, some pretty significant bigotry in you know, just a few years after? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, it, what a difference has made. And it's, it's interesting because sometimes you start wondering, like, have we gone too far that way? You know, I mean, now we live in a society where both parents have to work 
you know, there is nobody who can afford to stay home to raise the kids. I mean, unless, you know, one of them makes a ton of money. Um, so, uh, you know, is it good? Is it bad? You know, women now fighting to be also at the front line in war, um, you know, is that good? Is that bad? Is that right? Is it wrong? I don't know. I don't know the answer to it, but I do know that we are different. You know, there's a reason why women carry children, why, you know, we, we get pregnant because we're natural nurturers. Um, so when it comes to war and you have some, a woman at the front line, is there a little bit of that hesitation in killing the bad guy because, um, because of what we're innately born with? Um, is there also that clash of men who want to take care of the woman and, and look out for women more where that's going to kind of create a clash too on the front line. So, you know, I'm, I'm not here to, you know, argue that that's a much bigger thing, but it's just kind of food for thought, you know, um, it's amazing how far we've come, but then I, I also wonder like, okay, well, at what point are we, did we start to do some damage, you know, yeah. straying away from that? Well, I think it's when we try and make everyone equal, and equal is like a perfect balance, 50-50, you know, and that's not the way the world is. I mean, I'm 170 pounds. There's people that are literally twice my size that can, you know, bench press more than I can deadlift. I mean, that's just the way it is. So we all have places that are, you know, a good fit. And like you said, it seems from what I understand that women excel when it comes to, to flying, for example. That's, you know, something that I think they surpass, you know, most men in a lot of areas. Um, so... There's such a diverse set of skills in the military, in the fire service, in law enforcement, that I think there are places for both genders, but maybe not every single one. Maybe you don't want the breacher on a on a SWAT team to be, you know, the the middle strength versus the the most strong person on on the crew. You know, so I I totally understand that too, and I think that's the problem. Rather than having a diverse workforce. We've replaced, you know, the true meaning of diversity, which is all shapes and sizes with, you know, uh, mathematical equality, which never exists in nature. I agree 100 percent. You hit the nail on the head. Um, diversity has yeah, changed from instead of the right fit, like you said, a mathematical equation of equal fit. And, and you're getting away from logic. So, um, yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly with what you said. Well, you talked about the homeschool element. So in school age, what were you actually doing yourself as far as sports and athletics? Um, so I got into track team. There was um, a track team even like through our church. And so I got into that in the middle school. Um, and then I was always into dance and stuff. And I didn't realize that we could actually try out for the high school, you know, football team, cheerleading dance team or whatever, we didn't realize that until later that um, even though you're homeschooled, you're paying taxes to go to that school, you're still entitled to the same school athletics. So unfortunately, I kind of found out a little too late. I did try out for the dance team um, my senior year and I made the JV team because I had never taken formal dance lessons. And these girls had been in dance since they were in, you know, whatever, six years old. 
So um, I didn't want to join as a senior, you know, on the JV team just because of my own, you know, humility. <laughs> but uh, so unfortunately, I didn't do that. I was just I was always active. I was always outside playing basketball or organizing kickball or organizing softball, just, you know, in the open field in our neighborhood. And so it's kind of one of those jack of all trades, master of none. I just loved playing everything, but never really got into one specific thing per se. All right. Well, we're going to fast forward right to what you're doing now. So you're working in pediatrics now. And a thing you know, that I've just kind of stumbled across myself with all these these people I had on the show is it seems to be a common denominator in a storytelling, especially from the PTs and the coaches and some of those other you know um, movement experts, that the multi-sport athlete seems to be a lot more resilient than the single-sport athlete. And from an Englishman's eyes looking at the way we do athletics here, we foster a... a an immensely high level of performance from our children, high school and college. And then there seems to be a critical failure where they all break. And then now we have, we lose that ongoing wellness element. You know, we go from high level to, to inactivity. So what is your perspective now on school, you know, school age and collegiate athletes performance versus longevity? It's interesting um, that you brought that up because I was just at a conference last week that was with uh, sports medicine physicians, physical therapists, and athletic trainers. And we discussed that exact role. And we actually had a professional baseball player. Um, he's from North Norfolk, Virginia. I think his last name is Cudley, C-U-D-D, something like that, or Cutter. Um, anyways, and he played on the mats and things like that. But he played a diverse amount of sports. He played a variety of sports. He was captain of the football team. He was state champion in wrestling. And he didn't specialize literally until I think it was his junior year of high school or senior year of high school. Um, so he continued to play a variety of sports. And so the push to focus on one specific sport at such a young age, or you're not going to be successful is absolutely asinine. And you shouldn't do that because you're really just setting that kid up for injury and burnout. Um, you know, they're going to get sick of it. Probably. I don't know. Maybe not all, but a lot of them do. And, and then they just get so burnt out from it and then they just don't want to do anything and their skills haven't been built up to do anything else. Um, and so I think that on a developing body, it's so important to not do repetitive motions all the time. I mean, that's how anybody sets themselves up for injury, let alone a developing body like a child. So making sure they don't specialize at a young age. Um, that's it. That was a huge home hitter that uh, one of the uh, one of the MDs really pushed. Um, and also the statistics that. I think it was females who do not get into a sport or don't play sports before eighth grade have an 87% or 80% chance of not being physically active, which was just mind blowing. And it really makes you think, okay, that might change the way you raise your own child. Like, okay, we're going to make sure to get you in sports because the, you know, the chances of you not getting into being active in general is terrible. Um, and also the importance of play of not always doing organized sports, that how much more learning happens 
in the backyard when you have three kids playing baseball and they have to figure out the rules themselves and they have to figure out, okay, ghost man on third. And the education that comes from that is huge from play. And when you're in an organized sport and you're always being told what to do, you're not developing that imagination aspect of it. I think it was Stolen Focus, a book I just read, um, where they were talking about exactly that. And there's also a self-governing element. If it's you, and this is what I grew up with, we each, you know, we're in England, it's cold, we throw off our sweatshirts, we make two goalposts on each side, and then we have a game. There's no referee, there's no lineman, there's no, you know, anyone else that can say that we're offside or, you know, any of these other fouls that would happen. You just self-govern. If it's a bad tackle, you're like, I'm so sorry, mate, you held them up and you give them the penalty and that is it. But when these kids are told, all right, you're going to be practicing here, here is your game, here's where you're going to stand, here's your position, you've got the coach shouting at you, you've got the parents shouting at you, you've lost all autonomy as a child versus exactly like you said, who says that this stick can't be you know, a machine gun and now you're in World War Two. So I agree completely that imagination element and the self-governing community problem solving element as well. Yep, I agree. And you know, it's it's interesting, you know, what what's happening? Why aren't kids why aren't kids playing as much? I actually have a patient of mine and he told me the other day, he said, my friends don't want to hang out. Like where we're just hanging out outside, they just want to play video games. You know, why is this happening? Um, And I think it's a a combination of, first off, some of these kids just don't even have time. You know, my my mom was very anti-homework. She hated homework. She's like, why are you at school for eight hours a day? And then you come home and you have three hours of homework. When are you, when do you get to have family time? When, When do you get to have time to just be a kid? And then you throw an organized sports into the mix and then they definitely don't have time to just be a kid. And then, you know, you also notice people, the the neighborhood I grew up in, everybody had a yard. We had a big field at the corner of the street, you know, it was like sandlot, you know, you, you had that field to go play games and stuff. And now like nobody has yards anymore. Um, You have to go to the nearest park to do those things or, you know, there's no loitering or whatever. So it's like, where do kids even go hang out and just be imaginative? So um, there's a multiple factor of things that have just changed society for a whole that are making people more homebodies and, and not being as physically active. And it starts with the kids. I had a, a guy from Finland who's an educator and actually lives in Australia now, but he tours the world talking about the Finnish education system, which is always held as you know the pinnacle. And it's less is more. Firstly, they look at the child holistically. So, for example, if it's a um, a community that's more financially strapped, they invest in those schools. They don't, you know, ignore those schools. Um, the days are very short. There's a lot more play. I think there's recess every, my God, I think it's like every 10 minutes on the hour or something like that. So they get the kids outside, they get them playing, they get daylight on their, their eyeballs. And I don't think they get homework until high school level, I think it is. So, you know, all these things are so, so less academic than what we do here, what we do in the UK, and yet their performance, their academia, you know, achievements later in life far excel, um, excuse me, far excel ours. And obviously from a, you know, a, a holistic human element, I mean, they're, they're healthier, they're happier. There's so many other, you know, metrics that you can measure as well. So the less is more seems to apply in so many areas in these conversations and definitely in, in education. 
I agree. That's fascinating. I, I didn't realize that about them. Um, we have a lot to learn then, then from them. Um, and the fact that, you know, they do away with recess or they punish the bad kid by having him sit out at recess when that's the one thing he needs to do. He needs to get that energy out. Um, you know, like you said, developing the imagination that these kids in the poor communities now have the uh, opportunity to do and, and even developing the, the connections and the relationships by having that free play. Um, you know, it's more of a, that support group that they're probably developing as well. Um, yeah, that's, that's neat. I didn't know that about them. Yeah, no, it's amazing. Um, the other thing that I know we have in common is we both watch the motivation factor. So bringing it back to the U S at the time, it sounds like that particular system was one of the best in the world. Um, so you in the 50s and 60s, you have this California high school that has this multi-tiered physical education structure where teams of kids will vie for the next level and they will get, you know, the strength component, fitness component. Um, and you look at the footage of these uh, seniors and it looks like, you know, a Chippendales audition. It's, it's crazy. But their philosophy as well was if you make all the children fit if you give all the children exposure to what you would have if you were on a sports team then the the least fit of the ch children will still in this particular case i think they could still do 10 pull-ups and a gamut of other things but then if you want to go and be a baseball player a football player there is no conditioning you're already an uber athlete you just have to learn the skill from that sport now and how great would that be i mean even myself um by the time i really wanted to get into sports because I hadn't done it when I was younger, I was intimidated because I didn't want to go join the basketball team because all these girls, I'd only played basketball in my driveway. And all these other girls have been playing since they were, you know, seven, eight, nine years old. And so I was, I was intimidated by that. And, uh, and it's, it's just silly, you know, it's just like everybody has to learn at some point. And so um, if we had something like that, where you didn't have the kid who was, not fit enough to do it. Um, and everybody knew they, they were strong and healthy and they wanted to be active that that would just completely change the mindset. Um, yeah. Watching that, it honestly looked like I, I worked at buds, um, the Navy SEAL, um, and SWIC training command. And it just looked like a clip right out of, you know, buds and, and the Navy SEALs or the wannabe Navy SEALs all training to be part of it. I, so funny. I, I, I wish, I can't believe that they're not doing that anymore when they, they literally prove that it works. You know, why are we not investing in that? Um, I, I just, I don't understand. So. Well, even from the tactical lens, I've heard Tim Kennedy talking about the pool kind of shrinking a little bit for the number of people they get to select from, you know, law enforcement fire. If that was the average person, imagine the level of performance that you would have at all the hirings for you know the uniform personnel the special operations community but as you said you know you've got girls that are seemingly discouraged from playing sports um you have you know boys and girls that are being drawn into video games and and cell phone usage and inactivity that creates a much smaller pool for us to for draw from for all the the professions where lives are actually at stake yes yeah um you're right. And that's kind of why, um, you know, even jumping into when I worked for Naval Special Warfare Center, which again is the 
seal and swake training commands, um, they developed prep. They never had prep, Naval Special Warfare prep, which is a, a branch of it. They didn't have that before, but then they realized, hey, let's have a bigger pool of people, of candidates that we can choose from. So what we're gonna do is we're going to prep them so everybody is physically fit, physically prepared to go into, you know, buds or the pipeline for SWIC. And then it's just a matter of characteristics and mental toughness. You know, you're already, you don't have to worry about the physical domain. You've got the swimming down, you know, you've, you, can, you can do the PTs. Um, and let's just have a better selection of those who are just mentally, more mentally tough. Um, it's interesting though, you know, they, they thought that prep would help increase the amount of people that would make it through the pipeline. Um, but ironically enough, they, they didn't, they still kept the numbers the same, but I think that we still help develop healthier operators in the end that they not only were physically healthier coming out of it, coming into it. They also more had, they had the, the tools to know how to address certain things um, versus just, hey, push through it, push through it, push through it. Now these guys are coming out at least prolonging their operational career because they, they were able to withstand it. Well, I think as well, you've got those people who, you know, up to that prep course, may, maybe weren't ex um, exposed to a high level of, of suffering. Whereas if that had been nurtured from childhood, I'm sure that internal resilience, that that resistance to ring the bell probably would have been a lot stronger. But it was kind of like a not not a last minute, but but you're you're doing you know, X amount of weeks versus X amount of years. And perfect example, my son, I'm picking him up in a few hours, has just been on a JROTC army camp. We've had storms this week. It's been 106 out there every day. So I'm waiting to see. He's had no cell phone for a week, but I'm waiting to see. But that's the kind of discomfort that I think, you know, 10 years later would probably create a good candidate that would be able to, to suffer mentally as well. Yeah. Can you imagine if we did implement that kind of physical training, um, just how it would change the psychology even of kids these days, that mental resiliency, that mental toughness, it's okay to be in pain. It's okay to push yourself. Um, and like what your son's going through right now, it's okay to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. And then the pride that you have knowing like I pushed and I uh, persevered and I got through it and look at the accomplishment I did. And that carries over not only into physical fitness, but mental toughness as well, which is a huge problem in society these days. I just interviewed Michael Easter, who wrote The Comfort Crisis and uh, really unique perspective. And one of the things that actually really took me aback, of course, you know, there's the mental suffering and people listening to this podcast to take their job seriously have been through their own version of Crucible. You know, I mean, being in, in Fire Academy, in a good Fire Academy and all that gear in the middle of the summer is brutal, absolutely brutal. So, you know, it does kind of self-select a little bit. But it was actually the hunger element, the the the, lo the boredom and the hunger. So the, so the ability to sit with nothing to do and be truly present, but also the ability to understand that it's okay to be hungry sometimes. And we're surrounded by all this food. And again, let's look at our schools and all the crap that's served in, in their cafeterias and all the vending machines that are everywhere. But just the 
you know, the ability to to be hungry, to suffer in in all these different ways, I think is is you know a huge thing. And and we think of you know physical discomfort is one thing, but if you think of nutritional discomfort, that's something that people very very rarely ever go to. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, I I talk to my kids all the time about um, about what they're eating and foods selection. And a lot of them are like, Oh, I, I wouldn't even eat that crap in school. You know, I just wait till I get home to eat. And you're like, what? Like, you're a kid. How are you just not eating all day long? You know? Um, and so just, can you not pack something and bring it in to eat? But, um, yeah, the, the amount of anxiety, uh, that kids have now, um, post COVID, I get, I, I don't, I don't understand the detriment and I don't think everybody understands really the truly detriment that this whole COVID plague thing did to kids and the amount of anxiety that kids have now um, and their poor communication skills and interaction skills um, and resiliency with anything it is really sad. And um, I'm trying to, see if I can come up with an example, um, without, you know, giving too much information, but the amount of, uh, well, I have a lot of kids who I'm treating injuries that there, there's no injury. There is never any injury. Um, and so not really sure why they're here. Are they here because they like the attention, you know, as, as their brain creating pain in areas that they don't really have an injury. Um, the parents that complain about injuries all the time, I've noticed the kids take those injuries on themselves. Um, I had a kid the other day, I evaluated her for ankle pain, never had an ankle injury. She probably spent about 40 minutes telling me about her mom's ankle injuries and her ankle replacements. And I sat her down and I said, do you think that maybe your brain created this pain because you have it deemed in your brain that bad ankles run in your family. And so I told her, I said, unless it's an actual pathology that was passed on genetically from your family, there's no such thing as bad back runs in our family, bad shoulders run in our family. That's not true. Your dad's poor lifting mechanics and tweaking his back has nothing to do with you. And so a bad back does not run in the family. And when you have kids with back pain at 10 years old, unless they actually injure themselves is completely bogus. So yeah, it's, 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 a, it's different world now. Just the mental aspect that has to go into um, rehabbing these kids. Well, it reminds me of something that one of my guests said a while ago. And, and after they said it again, it was a kind of aha moment. Some people cling to a disease or an injury as their identity. Now, we know that, you know, our professions do. I mean, it's very hard to stop saying you're a firefighter and, you know, you're something you'd be proud of like a Marine. But, you know, it's not what you are. It's not, you know, it's, it's what you were. It's not who you are. Um, but when I thought about that, I'm like, yeah, all the patients I've got, all they talk about is their fibromyalgia or, you know, their back injury or whatever. And I've had back injuries. You know, it, it, it happens. But again, it doesn't define you unless you let it. So have you seen that in your career? Oh, absolutely. Um, I've worked with plenty of patients with fibromyalgia and I just, I avoid talking about pain. I talk nothing about pain and I just, it, I really focus on empowering themselves um, and, and just lifting them up in general. And it's really interesting when you see them just kind of 
take on their own health, um, how all of a sudden they're better and they don't have fibromyalgia. And it's just really, these people just need to be empowered. And a lot of them had some kind of traumatic event happen to them. And I teach them that just doesn't need to define who they are um, and to let go of their crutch. And I, I'm kind of that tough love physical therapist where I, I'll just call you out and I'll just be blunt and tell you how it is. Um, and they're just like, huh, I never actually thought about that. But, you know, it's like, well, somebody has to tell you um, because you, you might not realize it. Um, that's that's definitely been an issue. And that's it's funny you bring that up because um, I've talked to a couple of ultra marathoners who are friends of mine or have worked in the community and talked to them about this project that we're doing, the Human Performance Project at 7X Tour that we can get into later. But um They said, you know, one of the big things with this is people who get into these extreme sports or these extreme events, um, that's, that's their definition of who they are and they feel lost when it ends. And so, uh, I had never really thought about that, but I I've actually had some patients and she was like, yeah, I I always had to get into the next race or whatever, because that's who I was. And I finally realized, you know, like that was, that was my drug or that was my escape. Um, and I just needed to do some soul searching because the second those people are injured, that's when the depression kicks in. Because if that's who they are, what else do they have to offer this world, this society, um, if, if they're not contributing in that way? And so, you know, seeing that even in athletes when they're injured, the depression that kicks in because they can't do their one purpose that they feel they contribute to this world. Yeah, and that mirrors completely my community, you know, whether it's injury, whether it's promotion away from the fire stations behind a desk, whether it's retirement, whether it's being fired, you know, if you've identified as, you know, the soldier, the sailor, the firefighter, the cop, and all of a sudden you're not, and you've lost the fact that you were, for example, James Gearing, who became a firefighter, then that's crushing. And I really see that as a, a huge amplification of any mental health that's underlying. Yes, I agree. And so, you know, how do we change that mindset? How do we help people? Um, just, hey, how are you growing as a person? And what's the latest book you read instead of just always, you know, oh, you know, what did you do? Tell me about like this crazy fire you fought the other day. Da, da, da. Like, tell me about yourself. You know, what do you have going on? What are your other interests outside of this? And, you know, what are you doing to develop yourself, you know, holistically? So, um, yeah, I think a, a huge change in, in that whole field, like you said, of firefighters and police officers um, needs to change. I even saw the depression when the kids who didn't make it through buds and they dropped out and the suicide or the suicide watch that would happen, how, how frequently it happened was just mind blowing and really sad. Um, and I, so I talked to these kids, you know, like that's all. It's all I ever wanted to do. It's all I ever want to be. And like, that's not all there is to life. And sometimes all it takes is one injury to take that away. So um, who are you and what else do you like to do? So, Yeah, well, I think the thing that I realized when I transitioned out is there was an altruistic desire to help people that took me into the fire service. Well, that doesn't stop when you transition out. You just have to realize it's going to look different. And I had no idea when I was in fire academy suffering alongside my fellow, uh, you know, men and women that one day I'd be 
doing Zoom calls with a microphone and on the same mission. So it looks completely different. There's a lot less hero element to what we're doing right now, but it's the same exact path. And I think that's what a lot of people understand. Whatever, whatever drove them into whatever profession, you can carry that mission on. It's just going to look different and different most of the times is going to be even better. You did that thing. You tried SEAL selection. You were a firefighter, but now, you know, you only get one life. You don't want to book with one chapter, create something new. You're right. And I, I kind of went through that myself. Um, I mean, luckily I joined the, I joined the Navy later in life. Like I was 36 when I joined. Luckily, if you are joining with a doctorate degree or in the medical field, then <clears throat> you can join much later. So I had joined later, but it was so fulfilling. And the path that I went on was definitely not the norm. I mean, I was with special operations almost the entire time I was in. I, I quickly transitioned into it and fell in love with it. And I mean, it's there's not many physical therapists that um, get treated by with a thank you by going skydiving or, you know, throwing grenades or blowing up C4. And so it, it was so fulfilling and so fun. And I just, I absolutely loved it that um, when I got out, I, it was, it's, it was devastating. And I, I remember crying and, and, you know, telling my boyfriend, like, I just, I just lost like everything. I, I felt like I was part of this amazing community. And now I, I don't, I don't have this amazing job anymore. That's so cool. And, da, 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 and you know, so fulfilling. And he's just like, Marjorie, you, you love helping people and you're still going to make an impact um, on people, no matter what you do. And, and that's why I got into kids. Cause I, I think it's so important to um, in, have a huge role in impacting kids and raising them with um, better life skills and, and a passion and for health and fitness. But yeah, I, I was only in five and a half years and I, I felt that. Um, so I, I can't imagine, you know, when you actually are that operator and you're in for 20 years and you retire and get out and you're just like, okay, what now? So um, I, I feel for those guys and, and there definitely needs to be some kind of program in place for that transition and helping them. Absolutely. Well, speaking of transitions, so let's kind of walk your journey into physical therapy then. So you were in the physical education um, program. You know, what made you finally decide to transition out from there and why uh, physical therapy specifically? So, um, you know, I, I was just feeling burnt out, um, not only because of the pay and having to work a second job as a personal trainer in the evenings, um, but also just kind of feeling the bottom of the totem pole. And I just, I felt like there was something more that I needed to do. I needed something actually more uh, mentally challenging for myself and uh, did some soul searching. And every time I looked online at jobs, it was rehab, 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 rehab. And I initially had wanted to become a physical therapy tech. I looked into that or whatever at a, um, or, or assistant at a community college, but then it was just like, oh, cadaver lab and all this stuff. And, you know, 18 year old girl, I was queasy at the time. And so I was finally just like, Marjorie, you are drawn to rehab. My fascination and love of human anatomy and physiology um, was huge. I had gotten into a bad car accident um, my senior year at Florida State, and I was in physical therapy and working with a chiropractor for a year. And uh, 
every time I went in, I'd ask the chiropractor, well, what are you doing now? And why are you doing that? And what's this going to do? And he's like, why in the world are you not in this field? You obviously love it. You're so inquisitive about it. And so um, eventually it was just like the light bulb went off and I'm like, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm going back to school. It's a, I'm 30 years old, but I don't care. I know I have to take two years of prerequisites just to qualify to get into the program, which is three more years to get my doctorate. And um, 100% glad I did it. I ended up going to Marymount University um, in Arlington, Virginia, and I requested my final clinical rotation in San Diego because I knew that's where I wanted to live. That's where my heart belonged. And who doesn't want to live in San Diego? So did that. That way I could make job connections and immediately got hired um, by the company that I had interned with. And I got into the, um, the orthopedic residency program. So you kind of graduate PT school, you're okay at everything because there's so many aspects of it. There's pediatrics, cardiology, pulmonology, neuro, geriatrics, orthopedics. So I wanted to uh, be the best I could be in my field. And so I immediately went into an orthopedic residency and did that for a year. Um, <clears throat> and after that, loved it, enjoyed it, but living in California and with my student loans, I was living paycheck to paycheck, renting a room, uh, you know, car was paid off and paying a thousand dollars a month towards student loans. And after a year or two of doing that, I looked at how much I owed on my student loans and I owed thousands more. So I was like, I, what did I do to myself? I chose this career path that unfortunately the pay does not correlate with the loans that you have to take out. Um, so then that, that is what really kind of started transitioning me into the military is I looked at, okay, public service loan forgiveness program. All right, I need to work for a nonprofit. Well, what nonprofit do I want to work for? Um, well, I had so many friends living in San Diego that were in the military um, best friend, former force recon, you know, I dated a guy who was a SEAL and my roommate was a paratrooper. And so I saw the musculoskeletal injuries and they were always coming to me for help. And they're like, we never get this kind of hands-on care in the military. And I'm like, well, that's BS because you guys are giving up for our country. You deserve the best care there is. So I could have, you know, I decided that's it. I'm going to go serve the military. I love the military, came from a military background. And, uh, and that's kind of what drove me into joining. Um, I, I put in an application, officer application, and um, my recruiter said, hey, look, uh, we're only taking four physical therapists this year. That's, that's what our, we're billeted for this year. So your chances are kind of slim, not going to lie, um, because out of the 50 whatever applicants, we're only taking 40. So you might want to look into Army as well, because I think they're taking nine physical therapists this year. And I was like, no way. I came from both of my parents were Navy. And it's not just that, but let's be honest, the Navy has better bases. I'm always going to be at the ocean. I don't want to be in Yuma, Arizona. Um, and so I was like, that's it. It's all in or nothing. You know, it takes a long time for your packet to go through and uh, I'm, a, I'm a little bit stubborn in type A. And so <laughs> I was looking on USA Jobs and I found a GS position working for the Navy. And since uh, GS, obviously, you're working for the government, that's a nonprofit. So I didn't even need to go active 
I joined G I um, started working for them as GS. Um, and about four months in, they pulled me aside and said, Hey, you're actually selected as the number one person for, you know, to come in and be active duty. And I guess I interviewed well or whatever. And so, um, they were like, do you still want it? Or do you want to just stay GS? And I was like, no, I want to serve. And so I, I feel like I can make a bigger impact that way. Um, you know, you're a leader in your community. And so raised my hand and then it was kind of cool because I was at my clinic as a civilian first name basis to everybody. And then they said, you know, we're just going to send you to officer development school, come back. And that's going to be your first duty station, the exact same place I was already working. And so, you know, all the guys were like, Oh, how many more weeks till we have to start calling you ma'am and saluting you. And I was like, if you do, I'll gut punch you. Like my name's still going to be Marjorie or MJ, you know. I'd be like T minus six weeks, fucker. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Your dad is going to be 20. <laughs> Ma'am, you know. So it was an easy transition for me and a, a no brainer. And, um, and I just, uh, I loved it. I, it's funny, even when I went to go interview for the job as GS, um, my boss told me, he said, Marjorie, you're a big manual therapist. Um, I don't know how much you're going to like working for the Navy because the physical therapists do evaluations and then you don't see that patient for a month for, until it's a follow-up evaluation. So you e- evaluate them and then they're handed off to um, either an athletic trainer or physical therapy assistant or a tech that's running them through exercises. And I absolutely hated that um, because some of the magic is in tweaking everything that you do, you know, okay, yes, I'm going to give you these exercises. There's a reason. And then as soon as I see your body compensating and not performing it correctly, it's like, wait, hold on. You're not really activating, you're compensating. And that's more of what our trained eyes do. I mean, luckily athletic trainers are super skilled in that. And I would always try to push my patients to the athletic trainers and not necessarily a a tech that didn't have that trained eye or didn't have the, the manual skills to put their hands on them and make some adjustments. Um, so I hated that. And that was another big reason why I wanted to get into the special operations community. They don't have techs. They don't have aides. They don't have assistance. We are with them. It's all athletic trainers and personal uh, or physical therapists. So, um, I absolutely love that. That's where you can be with your patient all the time and you're, you're working with them hundred percent. So what kind of uh, population were you working with when you're doing your residency? I had anything from, um, a 10 year old with sprained ankle to an 80 year old with back pain. Um, so it was all across the spectrum. It was outpatient orthopedics. Um, but you know, it, it was, it was a good eye opener. You could have somebody with fibromyalgia or you could have this 40 year old ACL injury. And, um, so it was fun having that dynamic. Um, but it really burns you out because I was like, if I get one more 80 year old with low back pain, I'm, I'm going to kill the front office staff because there's not a whole lot I could do for you at that point. Um, and it's also exhausting, you know, with the regular civilian community, um, some people are forced to go to physical therapy forced before the doctor will do anything. So you have this 60 year old deconditioned woman 
who went to the doctor because she wants to go on pain meds or she wants an injection or she thinks she needs her 10th surgery because that's going to magically fix everything. And the doctor's like, I'm not touching you until you go to physical therapy. So they come to physical therapy and the front office is like, all right, well, we got another one for you, Marjorie. You know, she's a non-believer. She doesn't want to be here. And I don't know what it was. Maybe my positive personality just somehow I was like, I'm going to make this person like me and like physical therapy, you know? So that was like, all right, I got 50 minutes to like get, get you to buy in and change your mind. Um, and so it was really fun to do that. By the end, they were like, I can't wait to come, you know, giving me a hug at the end of the eval. And I was like, yeah, gotcha, you know, hook and sinker. But at the same time, by Friday, every day, I found myself so drained of compassion because I was just had to be this cheerleader all the time. And um, that was a huge difference from going from civilian sector to the military, um, more specifically special operators, where I, I never felt that drain of compassion um, because they were excited to come to physical therapy. They were super appreciative and they were also um, excited to be there. Like, Oh, awesome. Tell me you know, like, all right, what are we doing? What are we working on? Like, all right, what should I do after this? So um, they were already motivated. And so I didn't have to be that cheerleader, which, uh, which is a huge difference. I hurt my back about seven years ago now, I think it was. Um, and it was on duty lifting a patient. And when, uh, when I went to the workman's comp facility that we had, the, the, the central care, I wrote about this whole thing in my book because it was so infuriating. But basically, the initial eval was, hey, you just did it. Everything's inflamed. Come back in a few days. I totally understand that. So I went back in a few days, saw a different PA, like 300-pound dude, breathless, just from walking three rooms over, um, and literally said, I said, look, I, want, I need to start the route to physical therapy. You know, I know this is a musculoskeletal injury. I did it lifting. That means that I think that, you know, there's movement can, can fix it as well. Flat out refused ordered me i don't know who the hell he thought he was talking to but he tried to order me to take um anti-inflammatories and opioids and i'm like yeah no that's not going to happen um and so i actually just went back found out when that other guy was there and went back and got him and he was uh excellent and, and immediately we started the process with pt uh, i also paid out of pocket for cairo and then found foundation training which was truly the catalyst to my recovery never had any meds never had any surgery um and you know it was amazing but when i was in the pt facility um i live in ocala it's you know central florida so a lot of retirees here they had all the best intentions in the world but that facility was used to dealing with 78 year olds with hip replacements so i had to start really researching and bringing exercises to them and they were totally open to it and it was a great relationship but I didn't walk into a place that knew exactly what I did and what I, what I needed. So did you have that contrast when you went from the kind of residency side to the tactical population where you had to adjust to the elite level of performance that the tactical population needs? Yeah, I definitely, it, 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 was, uh, it was fun and challenging in a new way. Um, and even being a physical therapist in Southern California before I joined the tactical athletes, I realized, you know, when I had done some of my residencies in uh, or clinical rotations in Virginia, there were so many obese, deconditioned people that it was like, okay, we're just going to find your transverse abdominus. 
you know, for your low back pain, because I don't think you've done a, a crunch in your life um, versus, wow, I'm working with super fit people um, that it's not just a, a strength issue. Um, you know, we need to really hone in on your movement and what's going on here at, at another level and looking at your entire kinematics and biomechanics. And so at least in Southern California, I started seeing that because there are so many fit, active people there that you do need to be more on top of your game. Um, it is much more challenging as a physical therapist um, because it can't just be like this junk diagnosis and like, okay, everybody with low back pain does these set of exercises. No, like these people are fit, you know? Um, and so moving into the tactical athlete community, that's definitely the case. Um, you, I, and I love that. I, I want people to push me to even be a better clinician, you know, and learning from working with people who also have the same mindset. You know, there are a lot of physical therapy places where people just get stuck in their ways and they're, unfortunately, they're, they're, their mindset and thought process is the same as when they graduated PT school and they haven't grown and developed. You're like, have you picked up a research article in the last 20 years? Um, you know, get on top of your game. And so working in the tactical community, you have a better set of clinicians. Um, and so you're constantly learning from each other and then always having that humility that I don't know everything, you know, and I don't care if you have, you know, 20 years experience or five years experience, maybe you're going to catch something I didn't. Uh, and so using each other to, Hey, what do you think? And have them look at that. I'm not going to say anything, have another clinician check you out, make sure that we're both on page um, because it is, it is a little bit more difficult to diagnose. Um, and especially in the tactical athlete community that that can be life or death. If you miss something um, that's, that's serious. So it's, it's really important to be on top of your game. Well, we talked about the prep class for buds. Um, you know, I think my generation, at least, were were really told so many wrong things when it came to nutrition, when it came to exercise. You know, bodybuilding was huge. When when you see bodybuilders on a fire ground or you know, in, in a boot camp, more often than not, it doesn't translate well to actual performance. If it's pure, you know, pure aesthetic bodybuilding. Um, nutrition, you know, oh, carb up, carb load, have a bowl of pasta, all this stuff. And, you know, now today we realize, okay, that wasn't the best advice either. Um, but so there were a lot of mistakes made for a lot of us preparing for these professions. So I kind of stuck, kind of walk through the, the career field, starting at the, the candidate. What are some of the mistakes or maybe some of the common injuries you're seeing with people preparing to enter these professions? Um, definitely a, a lot of them, well, they're, super strong. And then they just realize, Hey, guess what? Muscle sinks. And if you want to be a Navy SEAL, you're going to have to be able to swim and you're going to have to be able to tread water for five minutes, holding a brick over your head. Um, so it's, it's not all about that. Um, so it, you have to be good at everything. You have to be good at swimming. You have to have the endurance for running. We had an Olympic swimmer, um, go through when I was there and he had swam with Michael Phelps and amazing swimmer did great in the swims, but just thrashed his bodies on all the running. It, he dislocated his patella and he had, you know, stress injuries. It, it was like he was always in rehab and, but had the heart of a lion and always wanted to get back out there. And he just realized for him, he's just this huge, you know, six foot four tree trunk guy and just had to drop a ton of weight. 
you know, it's not about being the biggest guy, the strongest guy. It's about lighten yourself up because you're more of an endurance athlete, if anything. Um, and so really prepping for that, a lot of them would have stress fracture injuries. Um, unfortunately at prep, it was up in, uh, great lakes. And so cold weather, if they were stuck running on an indoor track, well, guess what happens? You run in a circle over and over and over, you know, you're not changing your running surface. You're not changing the angle. Then you're, constantly having the same ground reactive force vectors, which is going to cause overuse injuries. So they were having stress fractures up there. They finally closed it up there and they said, all right, we're just going to have prep down in, in Coronado where we actually have buds as well, um, where the weather's nice and you can do things like that. So, um, you know, they weren't used to running in boots. Um, and so we were like, how can we cut down on the injuries? Do we need to change what shoes these guys are wearing? Um, but that's also kind of part of it, part of it. They, the weed out process is like, okay, who are these guys who are sometimes just prone to injuries? Um, some people just tend to, uh, be more prone to tendonitis than others and get it everywhere. And it's kind of, unfortunately you may have the heart of a lion, but your body just isn't made for this kind of stuff. And so, you know, that was also part of the weed out process. I had, um, a, Oh my God, why am I blanking on the word now? Podiatrist on the show who um, also worked with the tactical population. He worked with um, hockey players. So, you know, a sports podiatrist. And it was interesting him getting his take on this. In the fire service, the actual boots we wear into a fire have got the the steel shank and, you know, the, the toe. And obviously we're walking through glass and twisted metal and, you know, super hot temperatures. But outside of a fire ground or something we call IDLH, the rest of the time we're really just on streets. We're on regular um, surfaces. But there's this kind of, I guess, romanticism with old school military footwear and first responders, whether it's police, whether it's fire. Um, and so I've seen in my own feet and then obviously in my peers, a lot of issues coming from that. If you, if you, but someone told me the the police officer that actually hunted down the Vegas shooter threw off his boots because he couldn't run in them and actually hunted him down barefoot. So talk to me about footwear and talk to me about barefoot training. I've been ridiculed for years working out in CrossFit gyms with my shoes off as much as possible. But to me, the evolutionary element is very strong. But uh, what's your perspective on that? Yes, foot health is huge. And the problem with us growing up in a world where we always wear tennis shoes, you'll notice how weak the intrinsic muscles of your feet are. So the kid who grew up, you know, running around outside without his shoes on is way better off than those of us who always did wear our shoes. So the barefoot running um, is phenomenal. You just, you can't quickly transition into it. Um, and maybe it's not made for everybody. Um, because if you did that, your body's not used to it. Um, and you don't have maybe the mobility or the strength of those intrinsic muscles of your feet to be able to withhold it. But not only did we lose strength of the muscles of the feet, but they also became extremely rigid. And if you think about shock absorption, that was one of the first things I did when I, I looked at the, uh, the guys who came to rehab with um, stress fractures is I would have them stand, rotate, their upper trunk and I pay attention, did their feet pronate and supinate when they rotated their trunk? 
And if it didn't, they had rigid feet. And if that's your shock absorber, so if you're not dissipating force, ground reactive force vectors, the weight of your body through those ligaments, the way that they're supposed to, something has to take that force. Transfer of energy has got to go somewhere. And so it's getting dissipated up into your bones or your plantar fascia. And so you would notice those with the rigid foot would have plantar fasciitis and, um, um, you know, those tibial stress fractures and things like that. So that's a huge part of, uh, even the place I work now, since we're in a sports performance facility, even with pediatrics is working on foot health. So much of it is, you know, I'll take a TheraBand around their big toe and they're just doing toe strengthening exercises or a band around your feet. And you do domi exercises to strengthen the arches, you know, pick up the towel, pick up the marbles with your toes. Toe yoga has become huge now. Can you put your feet flat on the ground and lift your big toe, just your toe? Can you put your toe down and lift the rest, your big toe down and lift the rest of your toes? Can you splay your toes? Um, If you look at babies, they can do that. Um, And then as you get older, you can't. So you've lost that mobility, um, the body, the way the body works. If you don't use it, you lose it and the body likes movement. And so that's kind of where we went wrong in the shoe community. Um, and, and yeah, if, if you start with a barefoot running when you're younger, 100%, I'm sure you're going to be much better off. Some people are just born with poor genetics and maybe need some of that outside help. Um, but certainly it's not something I would say transition to at an older age quickly at all. So one thing that to me seems like it would be a, a sensible progression would be to go more towards a minimalist shoe, still a shoe, still protection, still puncture protection, but a minimalist shoe for our day-to-day activities as a you know, medic or whatever we're functioning, and then having our go-to, you know, Uber protection when we go to somewhere that might be more um, dangerous. So what what are these rigid shoes and, and the weight of a lot of these boots doing, not only to the foot, but all the way up through the body? So especially in the SEAL community, they're running in soft sand. Um, and so, and then they're also getting them wet because they have to jump in the water and then they're running in soft sand. And so we were like, okay, do we need to, we switched to Nike for a little bit. We did a test run. All right, Nike made these special boots. Um, let's do those instead. They're much lighter. And we did the whole, you know, stress fracture studies. Is it going to reduce... The stress fractures. Um, and what we found was actually those boots fell apart and, and then you only get issued, but so many boots. So now you're looking at the issue of durability versus foot comfort. Um, and where do you find that perfect line? And I think a, a lot of it is, is really just preparation. Um, you get what you get. You're not going to have much choice in the military, Um, But especially when you're going through training and things like that, luckily, once you are finished with that, then there are some choices Um, as long as you stay within a certain style, which is great that they are. It's not just one blanketed. All right, just this boot. You do have options now and you can get something that's more fit for your shoe type or your um, foot type that would uh, if you need more stability versus flexibility. Um, But in a training command, you don't really have that option and they really have to look at, okay, well, you know, those minimalist boots are great and all, but they fell apart. And these guys only get issued, you know, 
two pairs of boots to get through training. And so now I've got holes and they're duct taping them. And, you know, I'm looking at it like, how are you wearing this? So um, that's almost more of a, an issue than, uh, than if they had the more rigid and, and stable boot that lasted longer. I've got a friend who's uh, retired. Well, not retired because Marines don't retire. He's a Marine recon, um, and he had an exact issue. He, I think he did some of the um, the events that they do for for um, recon and um, had the minimalist one, and that was his his criticism. So yeah, finding that that balance between, as you said, durability, but not making a damn you know nineteen twenties diving boot that these men and women can't even move in. Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. Yeah, they're really uncomfortable. I mean, even, even the one I had to wear for my uniform and standing all day for work, I was uncomfortable at the end of the day and couldn't wait to get it off, you know, let alone like these guys in, in buds that are running. I think we, we calculated out, like it was almost 13 miles a day that they were running in these things. And they're not allowed to, they're not allowed to walk on base. They call it the buds shuffle. So they always have to be jogging. So foot injuries and lower extremity injuries were huge. And a lot of it was, not only that constant running, but then what they were running in. Now, since I transitioned out, I've been barefoot pretty much the whole time. Like it's a, it's a special event when I put shoes on. Um, and the thing that I added about six months ago now were yoga toes. So have you had any exposure of those? And do you, in your opinion, the, do they work? I actually, I don't know what yoga toes are. Oh, You're gonna have okay. To- um, so all it is is like a silicon... It's like four fingers and, and they sit between each of your toes. So I think you can wear them when you're doing yoga. I just wear them watching the TV. But they stretch out your toes because of that compression from the narrow boot. And they're supposed to reverse that kind of gnarling that you get from modern day shoes. Ooh, I want to get some of those myself now. I'm definitely going to have to try that out and be a tester myself. But how long do you have them and, and what difference have you seen? I mean, I... I Obviously, there's a there's a parallel effect of just simply not wearing shoes. So I've watched my toes widen, my, my feet widen, my toes splay more. But there's still a little kind of crookedness of the toes, and it does feel like you can feel them stretching. So assuming that stretching those uh, those ligaments is what you actually want, then yeah, I mean it's definitely definitely seems to work, and they seem very popular. But I mean, you know, obviously a physical therapist's opinion. I'll have to ask you in about three months' time, and you can tell me what you think. Yeah, I also think too, it's, it's um, if you're still wearing something, yeah, the stretching, uh, that's great and all, but um, as long as you're not missing out on that strengthening aspect of it, you know, somebody like you who tells me you're wearing minimalist shoes, you're, you're trying to walk around barefoot and the only time that you're wearing those yoga shoes is in yoga or if you're sitting down resting or something, then you're having that stretch your feet. I think that's great. Um, I think, you know, some people always want to go to the quick fix and so if they're like, okay, my toes are singing lean on me and crisscrossing and let me go get this and think that's going to fix it. You know, it's like, wait a second. Now you also, you need to be working on the strengthening aspect of it too. Um, and, and not just worrying about stretching it, stretching it, stretching it. So a little bit of both, but it sounds like, you know, you've got it kind of dialed in on, on what you should be doing with the strengthening aspect as well. All right. One more area on feet and then we will transition out of that, that subject. But in the actual gym, um were you using barefoot i mean i use barefoot like i said a lot of movements in crossfit um 
So obviously there's some things I don't when it comes to like double unders or something. I'm not going to be smashing my toes with the wire rope. But um, I, again, it, fa- it finds, it seems like I have such a great um, connection with the floor. The proprioception is so much better, even in box jumps and all kinds of things. So what element of that did you, you know, use with your men and women, if anything? Um, I, I always let people choose and what feels best for them. Um, but I agree, the more that you are controlling I, a lot of kids. I make them take them, take, take their shoes off in the gym. Um, because I want to see, want to see what their foot's doing under that shoe when they're doing a squat, you know, if their knee is collapsing in, we call it dynamic knee valgus. Um, why is that happening? Is it because you're, you're collapsing into pronation? Cause we need to start with that and controlling that. Um, because it might not be hip weakness. It could be coming from your foot. Why is that going on? So that's a huge aspect of it. And so it's funny because I, now some of them it's like the second they walk into the pt clinic they automatically just take off their shoes and they all work out the whole time in their socks so in the clinic i definitely see that um you know out in the gym you know obviously whatever feels most comfortable for you um but i definitely agree the more i love the more flexible minimalist also type of shoe that's what i work out in as well um it's interesting though the the crossfit shoe i think there's um, a little bit of like grip to it as well, possibly because I, I had one girl who was, uh, she owned her own CrossFit gym and she was, she had just done a squat and ponytail hair gets in the way. She went to get rid of the weight and her hair got caught and the shoes had such good grip on them. And she, it took her down so fast her feet stayed put, her whole body went down and she fractured and just shredded everything in her ankle. Uh, It was so bad when I saw her, she only could move one toe a little bit because she overstretched the nerves um, as well as, you know, rupturing ligaments and fracturing the bones and stuff. And I just couldn't believe that. Like, were you duct taped to the floor? How did that even happen? Um, But it was a long process, but I, I went to her first CrossFit uh, competition after that, she got first place. So, you know, it, it was fun. There were a lot of tears and uh, I told her, I was like, you're not going to like me for a little bit, but we're going to get through it and get you back to where you were at. So, Brilliant. Well, that's a good segue for the next portion then. So let's talk about, you know, the, the tactical athlete who's actually in their career. Again, what are some of the the reoccurring injuries that you started seeing? And then talk to me about rehab in general, because it seems culturally at the moment where there is immediately that conversation of surgery of of painkillers of you know all these pharmaceutical routes and no discussion unless you're with an osteopath a chiropractor a pt of hey it's gonna suck it's gonna really fucking hurt and it's gonna be infuriating and the mental health side is going to be taxing but we can fix this without any medication or you know with limited medication without um you know any surgery but it's just going to require patience and Let's look at the whole reason you got hurt in the first place so we can address that too. Absolutely. Um, You know, even going back to when we were at Buds, we observed all the aspects of training. Um, You know, the CEO told me when I checked in, he said, you're going to be horrified, but I want you to watch every aspect of training so you know what, what these guys do and what you need to rehab. So anytime somebody got injured, we actually had a group exercise class. I, I had an athletic trainer who ran a group exercise class and focused on preventing injuries of all the other things we would see. 
so that when they left rehab for whatever injury they had, they were better off with preventing any of the other injuries we saw, which, you know, lots of shoulder injuries, um, you know, there was a complete lack of scapular stability, scapular strength, rotator cuff strength, you know, these guys that just want to do pull-ups all day long. Well, great. You're working the big power movers, but you're not working. You're not strengthening those little muscles that create those arthrokinematic motions at the joint to stabilize the joint. You know, if, if you have, you're working the big delts and upper traps and your biceps, you're yanking that humerus into the glenohumeral joint. And instead you need to also work on those scap stabilizers. So they're not getting overpowered so that it's, you're not shredding your rotator cuff every time you lift up your arm, you know, who's working the hip stabilizers at the gym. These aren't the pretty beach body muscles. Um, and so you see a ton of hip weakness, ton of hip impingement in the military community. Um, and so teaching these guys, you know, they're, they feel gay as you will, you know, doing these hip thrusts and the hip spilly exercise. And it's like, at some point you just gotta go, you know what, who cares? At least you're healthy and you're going to be better off in the long run. So get over it and just do it. And you know, you secretly like it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Sometimes I tell them that, you know, whatever the exercise, ridiculous exercise they're doing that there's really no therapeutic effect. It's purely for my entertainment and uh, like a magic mic audition exactly exactly um so you know luckily the mindset is changing um with with rehab and a lot of the guys in the community they don't want they don't they they don't like pills they don't like uh anti-inflammatories a lot of them will say like i don't i try not to take any pill and so it's refreshing to hear that um some of them are quick to want, you know, an injection and things like that. And I'm like, Hey man, you know, if you start getting addicted to this, the injection, just fixing it, um, that's eventually going to break down your rotate, your tendons and your rotator cuff muscles. I mean, research shows that's why you can, you can only get, but so many, I'm like, that's a last resort because we're trying to ward off surgery, um, as long as possible. You're talking about steroid treatments. Yep. Yep. Getting the cortisone shots. So I'm like, that's what we start doing when surgery's on the line and we're trying to prolong till you need the surgery. So that's kind of what that's for. Um, but I always tell them, I'm like, look, the body is incredibly smart and amazing. You just have to give it the right environment to heal. And so if you tweaked your back, guess what? You can't get away with slouching. You can't get away with sitting in a deep couch because you have caused an injury. And so now any abnormal strain that you put on it, it's going to rear its ugly face and you're just going to prolong that healing process. It's kind of like somebody who sits with the slouch posture all day long. You know, I say, look, go like that with your arm, you know, slouch forward, lift your arm up. You literally can't lift it past a certain point because there's a mechanical block. It's a bony block. And you can do that now. But if you do that over and over and over because you have poor posture and you're painting a house or fence or whatever, well, now that's inflamed. It's like that annoying little brother that poked you in your arm. It doesn't hurt at first, but if I did that over and over and over a hundred times, that area is going to become hypersensitive. And so now what you have to do is you have to stop what caused the injury, what caused the inflammation. Great, fine and dandy. But guess what? It doesn't heal overnight. 
Okay. So we have to fix the reason we have to fix your posture, fix whatever, and make sure that you're always holding yourself in the best biomechanical position. And then you have to give it time for the inflammation to calm down. And then we have to make sure everything is strong because pain shuts down muscles. And so it's going to get weaker. And so now we have to strengthen. We also have to retrain the brain and the biomechanics. Um, it's proven research with people with chronic low back pain that the transverse abdominis does not automatically engage um, as fast when you go to reach for something or pick something up. There's a delay of activation. So even though you recover from um, a back injury, you have to retrain those muscles to your brain to fire in the appropriate order, or you're going to have recurrent back issues. And so, you know, doing those stupid minute exercises like transverse abdominis and, uh, you know, engaging that muscle and just moving your feet up and down because you need to retrain the brain to say, Hey, I need you to automatically activate when I start moving my legs, when I start moving my upper trunk. And so you always, whenever you have an injury, you have to go back to the basics because there's a retraining process that needs to happen. Well, I think that's what's so scary when I have friends that immediately go to surgery after a back injury is, let's say it works. I just I spoke to um, a firefighter recently and had a very successful back surgery, but that hasn't addressed the imbalances that created that back injury. So I think it lulls you in a false sense of security. And what I've seen more often than not with back surgeries is it's followed by a back surgery and then followed by a back surgery. And now I've got friends that you know, we're, we're truck company firefighters that were climbing, you know, 100 plus foot aerial ladders with saws in their hand. And now they walk around with a cane, you know, so that's the other side. I think that, you know, even if surgery happens to work for a specific, you know, um, process that, that happened from a traumatic event, if you're not also addressing all of the issues that led you to that in the first place, you're setting yourself for, excuse me, setting yourself up for failure yet again. Right. And that's what I try to tell everybody who the guys that do want to just jump right into surgery. I said, look, let's do this round of physical therapy. Let's see if it works, even if it doesn't. And you still need surgery. It's not that it didn't work. Let's say you still need it. There is a time and a place for it. You're going to be better off anyway, because now you're going into surgery already stronger where, you know, instead you're going to be in a sling for a certain amount of time, if it's shoulder surgery or whatever, but if you're going in already stronger, more fit, um, then you're going to have a better outcome all in general. So why not? Right. Um, exactly what you said, those, unfortunately, um, they, you do see those repeated back surgeries and I try to educate them and say, um, you know, look, you're never the same after an injury, but certainly after surgery, you're never going to be back hundred percent because you now have scar tissue. Scar tissue is its own thing. You try to get it to mimic the tissue it's replacing as best as possible. But I said, look, I've, I've dissected cadavers. I see what it does to the body. It's like gum on a hot summer day. It sticks to everything. And now nothing quite moves the same. Um, and it's not the same tissue anymore. So give your body the best environment try the conservative route. If it doesn't work, yes, there's a time and a place for surgery, but at least you're going to be better off afterwards as well. Well, the foundation training that really saved my career um, was 
phenomenal. Not only did it eventually get me out of pain, but soon after I returned to work, there's a fundraiser every year called the 343 Hero Challenge. It's like a tribute to the FDNY that we lost in 9-11, but also raising funds for, for charities today and honoring other people that we lost. Um, and that event, it was 225 pound deadlifts that you did um, with a burpee between each one. So not, you know, exceptionally heavy, but after a back injury, it was a real kind of uh, wake up call like wow this is not only healed but stronger than ever um, and I think that's the other side is if I stop moving the pain comes back and the founder of foundation training Eric Goodman will show his current MRIs all the time in his glasses like look my back's still fucked <laughs> if you look at the you know the MRI it is still destroyed like you said it doesn't magically go back but the column of strength around it has allowed me to do all these things be completely pain free so i think that's the area i mean this back to that choose your heart like going through surgery and then you know the financial and and um frustration element of having to return to surgery is hard or doing the movement practice work in the beginning and sustaining that it's hard, but that's going to pay dividends a lot better than than the kind of fast track route. Absolutely. You know, if if let's say you have a herniated disc, like who doesn't have a herniated disc? <laughs> okay. You know, a lot of people are disc bulge or something like that. I mean, we're all going to have, you know, degenerative changes eventually as we get older. But I tell them, look, if I've seen MRIs where there's a disc bulge and it is pushing the nerve, literally indented, pushing it out to the side. And this guy was adamant about not wanting surgery. And I, I love using his case as an example. He's like, look, you know, does it come and flare up? Yeah, that nerve is still getting pushed on all the time, but I've chosen not to let it rule my life. You know, I do these certain stretches every day and I do core strengthening. I don't necessarily, you know, deadlift or add additional compressive forces because I know I've already got this thing that's, you know, pushing out against my nerves, but I know what I need to do and I know. Uh, you know, to loosen things up, things are going to be tight because there's an irritated nerve. And when that irritated nerve traverses through other tissue, it's like a negative Nancy in a room. It's going to make everything else irritated. So that's why, you know, people tend to feel this tightness in their legs when you have an irritated nerve because those muscles are tensing, ten, tensing up because the nerve is, is irritated. So loosen it up, stretch it out, you know, and then just don't fixate on that. Don't fixate on your back pain and don't be afraid of back pain. Um, you know, it's okay Th using terms like oh, I threw my back out. It's horrible. Like, what does that even mean? Um, but people then get afraid of the pain. And so they never really push themselves into it. And so you have to push yourself into that uncomfort zone because sometimes you have, there's changes that happen. Your brain starts developing the signal of back pain, back pain, back pain. And, it could be six months from now and the body's amazing. Like I said, it can heal itself. But if your brain is so used to pain coming from that area, well, now you need to tell your brain, no, that area is healed. There's no pain anymore. It just kind of fell into this comfort zone where it just keeps telling you it's there. And so working into it and being like, okay, oh, there's that area. I'm going to get strong right in this area and, and, and get rid of that. You know, don't be afraid to get into it um, and, and focus on that area just to loosen things up, but don't fixate on it where I can't do things, you know, my, my back and all that stuff. So um, changing the mindset's a huge part of it too. Um, and, uh, and, and overcoming that receptor that happens of telling you that area is injured over and over is a big part. Absolutely. Well, 
the SEAL community obviously do a lot of their work at night. The fire service, you know, we're up for 24 hours at a time every three days. And so, so many of your community I've had on here, you know, my my observation in myself and my peers is that sleep deprivation is detrimental in every single area, including musculoskeletal injuries. Um, and so the, the, the fit firefighters that, that kind of get ridiculed for always getting hurt, to me, there's a physiological reason because they're not getting a rest and recovery to to you know grow from the training they're doing to try and improve their their efficiency. So talk to me about sleep from your perspective. Yeah, I mean that's that that's the time that the body heals itself. Um, so if you're not getting adequate sleep, then it not only throws off your hormone levels. I mean, we've seen the research studies that what there's like a 15% drop in testosterone after five days of it's either four or five days of five hours of sleep or less. Um, and so if you don't have the, the hormones to help you heal yourself, I mean, that's also your growth hormone and things like that. There's not going to be those, um, reactions happening to facilitate muscular growth or rebuild or, and things like that. So, um, getting the rest to regenerate in general is absolutely critical. And then injury happens on fatigue. Um, you know, one of the big things, even training for the seven X tour is like, Hey guys, don't just go on your long runs when you are refreshed and ready to go. Because when we do this seven X tour, you're going to be tired. You know, you're only sleeping on the plane. And so run while you're fatigued as well. Cause then we're also going to know like, what kind of injuries are going to come to fruition? You know, like what, what's going to rear its ugly face when you're doing this. Um, so what can we nip in the bud now? So um, sleep's a big part in understanding the changes in that injury happens from fatigue. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to 7X in a second. A lot of our athletes are older. You know, they, they have transitioned out the SEAL community, Delta, um, you know, the ultra running community. When you are working with the SEAL community, um, I like that phrase. You know, I think it's fear, fear of the old man in the profession where men die young you know it is hard to and i'm not saying anyone should be scared of anyone that's older but it is it's hard to sustain that level of performance as you age and i'm 48 now i've obviously transitioned out but you know the muscle soreness is longer the the injuries rear their head more frequently you know there's the mental element you know there's there's the heat compensation all these things are more challenging so i see why people respect the 50 year old police you know officer firefighter um you know seal operator so Talk to me about the forging longevity in that talk tactical population and, and how you were able to to give these men as long a career as possible. Well, it definitely starts with the fact that um, now we're implementing this whole human performance team um, that the guys didn't have before. Um, I mean, I can't tell you how many of the older operators have come to me saying, I wish we had this when we were in, this is amazing. Having rehab, having strength and conditioning coaches, having sports dietitians, um, having mental performance, um, you know, the mental performance, even to facilitate, to learn how to um, calm down and, and tap into that parasympathetic um, after doing a high intensity, you know, exercise, jump, whatever, fast roping. Um, and being able to now calm things down, get those cortisol levels dropped and, and start the healing process. So 
having this human performance team, I think, um, in the operational community is huge because we're, we're changing habits and we're educating so much more now, even in the beginning. So, you know, there's a huge aspect even at BUDS when the human performance team comes in and starts educating about things. And then that way it's, you're hearing it over and over and over. Then when you get to the teams, you're hearing it again. Um, and so, that's really where the true change is happening. Um, a lot of these older operators, yeah, <laughs> I've seen them like just broken head to toe and it breaks my heart. Um, and, but they have the heart of a lion and, you know, some of them I've moved their shoulder and it, it's, it makes you cringe because it's, it just, it's like a gear catching every second, every degree. And that's just the arthritis in there. But, um, you know, again, it's, it's okay. Well, what are you doing every day that maybe is inflaming this? And let's talk about your sleeping postures. Let's talk about um, how you're sitting all day and what are you doing? What environment are you in? And again, it's really all about giving the body the best environment for it to heal. I'm huge on posture. I'm huge on, um, you know, what position you're in all day, how you're sitting all day, what you're doing all day, what repetitive motion, are you doing that could be causing any kind of irritation? Um, and, and so that's kind of how I focus on, uh, on trying to prevent some of these injuries and it's, it's education and ownership and showing them, um, you know, what you can do to help your body heal better and make it last longer and changing some of those, those mindsets of, um, you know, go in the gym and lift heavier. Some of those guys, you put them in quadruped on their hands and their knees and you have them extend one arm and extend one leg, the opposite leg, and they topple over. And it's like, no wonder. Yeah. You look great with your shirt off and everything and you can deadlift 400 pounds and everything, but you are, you're, you're so unstable and you're wondering why you have back pain. You're wondering why you have hip pain um, because you're just picking heavy, heavy things up and putting them down. But when are you focusing on just the core work and the core stability? Uh, and I think that's where a lot of that older mindset has kind of, they, they didn't really get that crammed in. And so just reteaching them things like that and Hey, do yoga, you know, um, that's actually proven in research for people with chronic back pain is yoga is one of the best things you can do. And it's mobility, mobility, mobility. So as you get older, we get stiffer, we lose flexibility. As you weight train more, you're going to get more muscle restriction and fascial restriction. So you've got to have that balance. Nobody likes to go and stretch for an hour because it's cutting into my gym time. Well, guess what? You know, what else is going to cut into your gym times, the injury that you're going to sustain if you don't do this stuff. So, um, you know, get over your ego and go do hot yoga, um, and go do Pilates, you know, for your back and mix it up, try those things and, and see how you feel. I did a post and I just hit 48. Um, and it was basically all the things that are broken in my body versus taking my shirt off and saying, wow, I've got six packs, you know, six pack and I'm 48 because no one gives a shit, <laughs> but they think they care more about some honesty. And I realized that the kind of, um, the monologues I've been hearing about being in your 40s is, oh, that's when you're supposed to live heavy. Now get that muscle mass before you start losing it. And I disagree completely. In your 40s, you need to start addressing all the injuries that you've accumulated in your 20s and 30s 
and that will then glean performance. Like I, I'm probably as strong as I'm ever going to be. I'm not. I'm not known for my strength. You know, as far as my cardio is probably as good as it's ever going to be. But I can pull much more performance out if I fix my my knees. If I address my my back. So foundation training is something I rave about. Um, knees over toes. That program ATG is I found very very good for my knees. Um, I've been hanging supinated to address my my shoulder and, and elbows so all these little things but that's absolutely worth the investment and to me that will the performance and, and longevity you'll pull from that far outweighs trying to add five pounds to your deadlift absolutely you know i always i i give them the i pose the question of the why you know um why are you trying to lift deadlift 400 pounds why are you doing that um is that in is that going to make you a better operator? Is that improving your overall functional mobility? No, I don't think you're going to go have to lift a car off of a, a child trapped under there. I mean, that's, you know, that's not functional. And so what's great is I think society as a whole is really switching to more of functional mobility, function, function, function. That's kind of what's getting driven in nowadays. Um, versus the old school thought. So trying to get some of these older guys to buy into more of that functional mobility. Um, I think they're seeing it, you know, they're seeing these young fit guys and they might not be as jacked or as ripped, but they're the things that they're doing in the gym, the, the way that they're moving and, um, and how they feel is just so much more important. And they're finally getting this buy-in, you know, Hey, guess what? It is cool to, to stretch and just do body weight exercises and focusing more on these functional movements, overall movements um, versus just, you know, a single arm exercise or, or anything like that. So yeah, the mindset's definitely is switch more to that function um, versus just looking good. So in this discussion, we've talked about, you know, a little bit about the kind of generation I grew up with, a lot of the misinformation there that came really from sales, you know, selling bodybuilding equipment, selling supplements and diet plans. And then you've got this generation now, which are swimming upstream, trying to get physical education, you know, time and time in, in daylight. So the Human Performance Project is really taking what you experience in um, naval special warfare and all the the uh, resources that those men had for them, and bringing it to the fire, the police, the you know the potential soldier, um, and then creating a resource, a manual for them, which in turn will also be a fundraiser for all the amazing nonprofits that are attached to it um, that Ryan has founded. So how did you become aware of this project? And let's start exploring your role. Sure. Um, I met Ryan last year um, at a, a funeral, actually, of a mutual friend. He was a guy from my command and Ryan had served with him on SEAL Team 7. So um, we were at a memorial service for him. And afterwards, everybody got beers and things like that. So we were hanging out and another friend of ours, uh, a mutual friend of ours introduced us and we just started chit chatting and, uh, you know, Ryan's energy is great. He's such a fun guy. And, um, I was just fascinated with his story and he was like, Oh, what do you do? You know? And I told him I worked in human performance, um, with the, with the squadron or with the team. And so he's happened to bring up this project. He's like, Oh, well, you know, I'm doing this human performance project and this is what I'm doing. And he's like, I'm, I'm looking for a team of people 
people um, who are in human performance, is this something you'd be interested in? And I was like, oh my gosh, absolutely. This sounds fascinating. And um, so anyway, it was funny. He's like, okay, well, let's set up a phone call and all this stuff. And so we ended up chatting and he was like, okay, what is it exactly you do? He didn't even know I was a physical therapist. So he just knew I worked in human performance. And um, so it was neat. That's how, that's how I got brought on board. And then, um, you know, he's telling me what he's doing and I'm like, okay, you don't even have a sports dietitian. I'm like, we have got to bring somebody on board. And then I recruited Chelsea and um, I've recruited some other friends of mine that I know of, like my buddy ran from New York city or from San Diego to New York city in 93 days. So um, I was like, okay, he's probably a good asset too, you know, and it's all about just, Hey, who do I know that can help bring something to the table um, to make this a seamless, it's not going to be seamless, right? We're going to have bumps and bruises, but um, to help us think of things that we're not thinking of, you know, you got to be humble and be like, okay, this is what I know. This is my lane. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like, you know, I know how to do all this other stuff. And uh, so I, but I know somebody who does know that. So, you know, bringing in the, the additional experts. So um, that's kind of how I got into it. Um, And then now what I'm doing is, you know, everybody's so different. It's hard to just give somebody a blanket, um, hey, do these exercises without me putting my hands on them and seeing the why, because I'm huge into, well, why did your shoulder hurt in the first place? And, you know, putting my hands on you and feeling and assessing. um, And then that's how we're going to fix you because everybody's so different. Um, But I am still trying to give some things like foot health and the foot mobility exercises and some general stuff that you can do to prevent knee injuries and hip stability, stuff that people don't typically know to go do when they're working out. So here's some stuff that you can do initially, but then I've already had quite a few guys hit me up one-on-one saying, Hey, I'm experiencing this, you know, what do you think it is? And we'll kind of dialogue together and go, okay, well, it could be this. Why don't you try, try this? Let me know if that, if that helps, you know, if I throw too many things at you at once, we're not going to know really what fixed it. So um, giving them a few things at a time, try that. Did it work? Did it not? And then in August, we're all going to get together. Um, I'll do a head to toe, you know, orthopedic screen. Like you would have if you were at the combine or the NFL combine or whatever, Um, screen them orthopedically and then hone in on the areas that they've been having injuries or experiencing some, some additional issues. So the the pinnacle event, or I guess that the testing event is 7X. So they are going to do seven skydives or base jumps, seven marathons, and seven swims in seven continents in seven days. So we've talked about temperature changes. We've talked about sleep deprivation. What are the challenges through your eyes of that one week of hell that they're going to be going through? Yeah, definitely the recovery aspect is is something, you know, we're, we're all concerned about, um, not only physically because, you know, obviously running seven marathons back to back, but, um, they also need to make sure when they're doing something dangerous, like a base jump, um, have they recovered and are they mentally able to be focused as well? So all of that really factors in, but from my, I can't really do too much on that. Hopefully maybe even get some mental performance person on board, um, to help with that, to switch from parasympathetic, to sympathetic and things like that and, and sympathetic to parasympathetic. But, um, in my regards, I'm, I'm probably going to be doing a lot of, uh, 
blister patching and things like that, whatever to keep them going is probably going to be like seeing hell week um, all over again. And um, I can't pull you out. It's going to be a disaster of overuse injuries, but what can I do to patch you up to keep you going? Um, so I want to bring, you know, uh, a, a treatment table. I can do some osteopathic manipulations, you know, after you're jumping, you know, your spine's getting a little locked up. Let's adjust, let's loosen you up. Let's stretch you out, you know, some grass and tools to help with any tendonitis that might be going on. Um, some Normatex to help with that lactic acid recovery, um, to flush it out, uh, because, you know, you're going to be resting on a plane. So, can we get some supplemental oxygen as well to facilitate some of that? Because, you know, uh, it's kind of like being at 8,000 elevation when you're flying. So, because there is going to be some reduced oxygen. So, you know, can we do that um, to help facilitate some additional healing as well? So looking at that, looking at, you know, compression gear as well um, to help facilitate that lactic acid return and reduce that, that strain on the musculoskeletal system. Um, just to keep them patched up and, and able to complete it. So, yeah, it's going to be an incredible, incredible week. And, um, you know, I think the elements, like I said, of the different time zones, the, you know, the circadian rhythm screw up the sleep deprivation. Cause I know we're going to be sleeping on a plane. Doesn't mean we're actually going to be sleeping, you know, depending on what we find, you know, when we're on there. Um, but then, yeah, that, that cumulative effect, I'm sure day two, they're probably going to be a little bit sore, but by day six and seven, I'm sure it's going to be, uh, you know, they're probably going to be returning back to their buds days to find that, that, you know, mental fortitude that they needed 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and hoping to avoid things like rhabdo and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, it's funny because even in, even in Hell Week, you saw what the body could actually overcome and when you just persevered through it, you know, it's probably the only place where I've seen people have pneumonia and we're like, okay, buddy, uh, get back out there and hope for the best. You know, <laughs> it's just like, you can kind of push through it. And, and even post all week, we would always tell them, we're like, do not go to the hospital. <clears throat> if you go to the hospital, hospital without us actually like sending you there, they're going to check you in because you're, guaranteed you're going to have rhabdo. You're going to have like elevated this and that. And there you look like a disaster. I mean, it's just the, the body retains so much fluid. They're so inflamed. Um, so hoping to avoid all that, obviously with through compression gear, Normatex, trying to get some rest. Um, it, you know, even the circadian rhythm, there's you can adjust it <clears throat> by exposing, you know, your eyes and your retina to a certain level of lumens. You can adjust your circadian rhythm. You know, I do a practice where I, I'll go outside in the first 30 minutes of waking up and kickstart my cortisol levels, kickstart my circadian rhythm just by exposing my eyes to a certain amount of lumens, about 10, 10 minutes of, of regular sunlight without clouds can kickstart that so that you actually then, can start to get tired and you can adjust that naturally um, by finding your body temperature low point, which is a couple hours before you wake up naturally. And you can adjust by exposing your waking up, exposing yourself to a certain amount of light and changing that circadian rhythm. However, we have the challenge that, you know, it's changing every 24 hours. Especially in Antarctica where it barely gets dark in the summer. 
Exactly. So there are ways people can prevent jet lag. And, you know, maybe even that can be something that's in our manual that we can say, hey, these are some things in research that are proven ways to avoid jet lag, to switch your circadian level or circadian rhythm. But yeah, that's not something obviously that we're going to have the opportunity to do. You know, Antarctica, I mean, hopefully I know when I uh, went, um, when I was in the Navy, I went up to uh, Alaska um, we do some training up there and they had lights to expose themselves, gives themselves not only the vitamin D levels they were supposed to get, but you know, you're, you're not getting that natural sunlight. There's so many benefits to it. Um, so who knows? There's, I think there's actually even portable screens that you can use and it gives you those lumens that you can do. So if you are doing a lot of traveling, you can expose yourself to that. So yeah, isn't that a seasonal affective disorder? I think that's what they used to call it. And you'd actually be able to put a big light on your desk and that would kind of reset your rhythm a little bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so I think, yeah, they make portable things now. You can take it when you travel, um, uh, which would be pretty cool, you know, so you don't waste those days on vacation just trying to catch up. So, yeah. Well, one more thing before we go to some closing questions. Um, Obviously, this whole thing is is a kind of ongoing experiment to therefore create this manual. Are there any things through a physical therapist's perspective that you're testing as you prepare them for this uh, 7X event and then the recovery after? Yes, we, we want to do the um, Bruce Protocol VO2 max testing. Um, we want to do lactic acid testing, um, as well as, of course, like musculoskeletal assessments. And looking at all of that and looking at their kinematics <clears throat> and then afterwards and really actually testing them throughout it to make sure that they're training at the elite level at their best level. So if you can train up to your lactic acid threshold and you're increasing that lactic acid threshold, then you need to continuously test to kind of assess that. And so that's kind of what we're going to be looking at. Some of the biomarkers we're going to be looking at um, ahead of time throughout training and then at the end as well. Uh, just one thing I meant to ask you earlier, um, FMS is, is gonna one of the kind of most popular screens. What physical screen are you actually using? Which one do you prefer? Uh, that's what I'm going to do as well. I'm going to do the FMS um, and then I'm just going to look at um, some other things like looking at foot mobility and looking at strength, like um, some of the other things and looking at flexibility, just other things that I know um, have created a lot of injuries throughout the years, but then uh, the general FMS screen, I'm definitely going to use as well. Um, we even did that um, for screens uh, when the guys were in buds. It was part of our our assessments for them too. So yeah, going to use that as part of the MSK screen. Brilliant. All right. Well, then I'm going to transition to some closing questions so I can let you go. I've been chatting for almost two hours. Um, the first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Uh, I love the book. Um, there's two. One is, um, let's see, it was about Louis Zamperini. Uh, is almost a biography. I'm trying to remember. Oh, Unbroken. Um, I love that book. It's really the power of perseverance when you are getting constantly kicked down and always having that hope um, and pushing through and just reading it, you, you feel for the guy, you're like, how is it? Nothing can go right for him. Um, but yet he pushed through. And in the end, he, 
he, uh, he made it through. I mean, it, it even talked about how um, he, he even had nightmares of being tortured um, when he drifted into the waters in Japan and it was tortured all his life. He finally escapes being a POW. Um, and then he has these night terrors and um, you know, whether or not you're religious or whatever, he, he was like, Oh, when I was floating in that raft, I said, God, if you save me right now, uh, I'll give my life to you. And he ended up floating into Japanese water. So it really wasn't exactly what he was looking for. Um, but then he had those night terrors and his wife, he was an alcoholic. His wife wanted him to, um, to go, you know, go see this preacher. And he's like, no, no, I, I don't believe in that stuff. Look at what I've been through. There's no God. Anyway, he finally went <clears throat> and in the middle of the guy preaching, he wanted to get up. He was kind of annoyed. He got up and he started to leave. And then he said, you know what? I did make that promise. You did, technically, you did save me. All right, I'm going to sit down and see this out. And he did. And after that, he, he never had another night terror. He, um, he ended up opening a boy, uh, an orphanage for boys and stopped being an alcoholic. So it, it's kind of neat. It's just, it, it even has that feel-good story at the end of it. So that's one of them, uh, a little long-winded. But uh, another is Leaders Eat Last. Um, I think it's a, a great book on... Um, being humble and uh, learning how to be a true leader um, and not a, uh, not a tyrant and things like that. So it's just a, it's an overall really good book that anybody should read, whether you're in the military or not. Yeah. Maybe we should send a few uh, copies to DC. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean the last few years, not just this current one. Um, All right. But then, yeah, with Unbroken, and I forget who it was. It might be Michael Easter, but he was talking about the same, um, but in the movie. But I think as well, his running record was incredible after all that he went through, all the torture and, you know, the broken bones. I think he came back and ran only like four seconds slower than he had before all of that as well. So incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Again, you know, mindset, power of perseverance and um, your mind can overcome so many things, you know, don't let your injuries, um, get in the way of you. And don't, like we talked about earlier, don't let it become who you are. Um, you know, learn how to overcome, adapt and overcome. Absolutely. All right. Well then what about a movie and or documentary that you love? Um, documentary that I love. Let's see. I, I watched one recently um, that it was, I think it was called 13 Peaks. That was pretty fascinating. Um, Yeah, just watching this team come together. And again, this was some poor guy who just, he didn't have money to do all this. And again, it just just shows when you put your heart and soul into something um, and you have the support, what amazingness can come from it. He was poor and it, he was doing this and his wife's like, Oh, are you kidding me? But she still supported him. So anyway, that's a really good documentary. Um, and then movie wise, um, gosh, I don't know. I can't think of one off the top of my head. That is, uh, an impactful movie that I love. Cause I just, I love to laugh. So I watch a lot of comedies, <laughs> which is your favorite comedy then or one of your favorite <laughs> You know, I just love Dumb and Dumber. It just, I think it gets funnier the more I watch it. <laughs> so, you know, you can use it in your daily conversations with people and it always gets people to crack a smile. So, 
Absolutely. Well, with 13 Peaks, I had Nimsdai on the show. He, um, I mean, his oh, story wow. from, from being selected as a Gurkha and joining the uh, SBS in the UK. And like you said, you know, basically mortgaging his house to fund the you know, 13 Peaks. I mean, and then now he's shifted to an even more altruistic element where he's focusing on cleaning up the mountains. I mean, you know, all these tourists come in and they, they climb and leave a lot of trash along the way. So now they're taking their climbing ability and cleaning up these mountains as well. So he's a phenomenal human being. Wow. Yes. That's so, that's neat. Um, I love that they're doing that now. I, I just recently hiked to Machu Picchu four days to the Andes and um, that was a huge thing. It's like, leave absolutely nothing behind. They're, you know, very, very um, big sticklers on that. So yeah, preserving, it's nice to go and see all the beauty, but let's also make sure we, we keep it the beauty that it is. Absolutely. I was talking to someone the other day about the COVID, you know, and when it first happened, there was such a magical moment where the canals in Venice were clearing up, the, the hole in the ozone was closing and then it, everyone was like, ah, fuck it, get back on the roads, glo- gloves and masks. And we just missed this giant, giant lesson from Mother Nature. So uh, I hope, you know, for whatever happens, a new leader, whatever, we can circle around and, and revisit that because that was awe inspiring, you know, and, and animals and wildlife that had never been in certain urban areas came back. And, you know, that I think to me was one of the highlights. It was a very sad time for a lot of people, but that was a real glimmer of, of optimism, in my opinion. You're right. Um, we we definitely need to take the lessons learned in so many aspects of of what that did, shutting a country down. You know, you can sit there and um, complain about all the uh, annoyances and inconveniences, but um, if you can also find some of the positive outs- aspects of it, learn from it, and actually make change, I think that's that's the huge part. You know, history is just going to keep repeating itself if you don't you know, learn from it and, and, you know, impact the future with it. Absolutely. And even the people that we lost, we honor them by moving the needle on wellness, moving the needle on mental health. But if we, which sadly has happened, you know, close all the gyms and leave fast food and liquor stores open, you know, we come out of it learning nothing, then they all died for nothing. But if we come out of a tragedy like that saying we have to change the health of our nation, then maybe we honor their loss a little bit too. I love that. I love that. I agree. Um, yeah, I, I lost, I lost my father from it. Um, you know, and just knowing it was like, Oh, we get, we get one time to visit him. Um, and if you visit him, you can't come back cause he's, he's COVID positive. So the one time we got to visit him, he's, you know, on the ventilator probably didn't even know we were there, but we all got to hold his hand as he passed away. But you know, when you, you take older people and you're not letting them, not letting people come visit them and see them, their health is just going to decline. So you're right. You're absolutely right that, you know, we need to learn from all these things and honor their legacy by showing the detriment and showing what we can do to help people in the future. Absolutely. Well, I'm so sorry to hear about your father. Thank you. Well, speaking of great people, um, is there a person you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? I had actually, oh man, I had actually thought of somebody who would be great and now I'm completely um, brain farting on who... um, 
but and I'll have to get back to you on that. I mean, I know, I know a ton of people that, um, you know, would be just a, a great asset of knowledge. Um, but if I had to choose one right now, I'll have to get back to you on that because I, I thought of somebody for you. Yeah, no problem at all. Perfect. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure people know where to find you, what do you do to, de- excuse me, what do you do to decompress? Uh, oh, I love to exercise and I love to be in nature. Um, so me exercising in nature is my happiness. So whether it's going on a hike in the mountains or wakeboarding or wake surfing, because there's something very therapeutic about being on the water. Um, so those are probably my absolute favorite things to do. Camping, hiking and, and wake surfing or wakeboarding. Beautiful. So again, this this closing question, so many common denominators and nature and, you know, water and um, community. I mean, they just come up over and over and over again. And it's sad because, again, going back to COVID for a second, if you look at the message that was given, it was all the things that are healing were taken away from people, you know, and all the bad things were being delivered to their house. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I, almost got arrested sneaking into a national park when I was in California, just going to going out in the middle of the desert to go explore these mud caves. And, you know, we get busted. And this guy's like, first off, you're supposed to be isolating. You shouldn't be with people that you don't live with. And now, you know, you're not supposed to be out outside at this national park it's just it's like we took all logic out you know it just didn't make sense (laughs) yeah well i'm glad that everyone's now you know able to find it and again hopefully value it more you know this time that we we lost for a bit so i'm sure people you know just overwhelmed by the information that's in this conversation would love to follow you or reach out to you where are the best places online for that sure um i do have an instagram it is mj underscore DPT, so Doctor of Physical Therapy, MJ underscore DPT. That's my handle. So it's mostly my adventures. I'm big into traveling and I love traveling to national parks. So um, most of it's that. So I always hope to influence others by showing pictures of the beauty that this world has to offer um, and to get outside and be active and, you know, turn off your phone and experience nature because it's very healing in, in many ways. So I always hope to uh, in, inspire people through some of my posts with that. Brilliant. Well, Marjorie, I just want to say thank you. It's been an amazing conversation. Like I said, two hours long again, just like Chelsea's one, but so much information. And, you know, for you, for her, working specifically with a very unique population, your your lens is invaluable for this audience. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Thank you. It's an honor to have, uh, to have been on here today and chat with you. Thank you so much. 